0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is sponsored by my Lit Daily Online Yoga Classes. This is an exclusive pass into my personal practice and program that I created from experience as a physical therapist and 20 years of developing my Lit Yoga Methodology. There is a different class with me every day, including special monthly live streams, so you can feel your most lit up anytime and anywhere. Get a three day free trial today by going to movementbylara.com and clicking daily classes. Let's get moving. Good movement, and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a Movement by Lara podcast which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings everywhere. Today's podcast <laughs> is a Q&A with me. So I always get a lot of questions via email and direct messages and all that kind of stuff. And I don't get to them all, I try, and I also will ask people on Instagram to send me some questions. So I have a bunch of those here today. And I'm gonna get through some of them and hopefully whatever ones I go through will will help you. So one I, I got, let me see, I think I counted nine about the about carpal tunnel. So all kinds of things, people suffering from carpal tunnel, what to do. I think I have it. So carpal tunnel, for those of you who are not familiar with it, is referring to the area in your wrist joint. If you look down with your palm up and you look at this line across where the hand meets the lower arm bone, that is the area of the wrist joint. And there is a little tunnel there where all the tendons from the muscles in your forearm um, come through into the, um, the hand. And in in addition to the tendons that are running through this tunnel, there's nerves that either are providing the motor firing for the muscles or giving sensorial information. And we have a ton of sensorial information in our hands. And just like our toes and our feet, we have a lot of sensation there. So all of that's going through a a pretty small tunnel. And that tunnel has um, a sheath around it, some fascia around it that kind of holds the, everything in this perfect kind of intricate network. So in daily life, if we're moving our hand and putting weight in our hand and into our wrist joint in a variety of ways, it should stay pretty healthy without a problem. The problem is that our modern day life, and this could be said probably even during the agrarian um, agricultural revolution when people were doing one repetitive thing with their hand, Th- that you can get repetitive use syndrome. It's called, and that's when you're doing the same movement over and over, so that the tendons are um, overstressed. They can't meet the demand of the work, and they're uh, they have some inflammation as a result of that. And so, imagine in this little tunnel, the carpal tunnel. There, there is some inflammation because of overuse, and then that inflammation doesn't have anywhere to go. And what it ends up doing is compressing or pressing in on the nerves. So, people who are experiencing carpal tunnel syndrome will have complaints of numbness, pain, pain, of course, is a big one, and pressure. So, all of those are because of the inflammation that's happening within the tunnel itself. So, what leads to this? Well, a lot of people who work at a computer all day and are in this repetitive, flexed position of the wrist are going to possibly you know, more likely to have this happen. There are things that you can do for sure. If you're working at a computer all day, that is really tough. I understand. And I know they have different ergonomic props to put under your wrist to kind of position them so that they're not in this flexed position. So flexed is like if you have your palm up again and you look down at it and you start to pull your fingers toward your forearm, so the fingers are coming toward you, that's flexion. So if you just flip it around and imagine typing on a computer, you can imagine that's a flex position. And, and then and you do that multiple times a day, many, many times a day. Um, so extension is the opposite of it. It's if it you the palm of your hand is up and you're looking at it and you bring your fingers away from your body, you're going into wrist extension. So the The way that you can do, so most people are asking what to do about it if they have it. The biggest thing you can do to prevent it is to balance out the movements that you're doing. You're most likely doing non-weight-bearing movements and repetitive wrist flexion. And again, the, the computer is probably the biggest culprit that I've seen. So the thing you need to do is you need to frequently stretch your wrist in the opposite direction, in wrist extension. So turn your palm up, bend your elbow, look down at your palm and say that's your right palm that you're looking at. Grab your left, with your left hand, grab your right fingers and pull back um, so that you're pulling into wrist extension. And then simultaneously to that, put your left thumb at at the back of your hand. So it's the opposite side of the palm side to act like a little buttress so that when you pull back, you've got some kind of leverage there. And keep the elbow bent when you're doing this. And then you can also straighten the elbow. So there's different muscles that cross over the wrist joint, the tendons there, that um, either go a very short distance or a much longer distance up into the elbow. So keeping the elbow bent is going to go into the deeper um, wrist flexors, flexors and keeping the elbow straight will go into the more superficial ones. So do both. I do, those, I do wrist stretches at the beginning of every single class because I want to prepare for weight bearing, which is the second thing you must do it's so counterintuitive. And when people tell me that they have, when I ask them if there's anything I should know about, if they're new to the studio and I'm working with them. And and if they tell me, oh, I have carpal tunnel, I will say, okay, well, we're going to put weight on your hands. And it's actually going to improve that. Sometimes they, they look at me in disbelief, but inevitably every single one of them eventually comes to me within days, weeks, um, and says, oh my gosh, my wrist feels so much better. So part of the reason you are getting that inflammatory response is that the, the demand on the muscles and the tendons is too much, and that that creates an inflammation. Inflammation is there. It is at your body's protective mechanism to make you stop doing whatever you're doing. And a lot of times it'll happen if you are putting too much stress or load onto something that is not prepared to handle it. So instead of just letting you do that and then something will crumple, um, it it starts to create swelling and pain so that you'll stop doing it. So it's very, it's very handy to have inflammation. It's our body talking to us. The best thing you can do is create more strength in this area and that is through weight bearing. And in weight bearing, you're going to be on your wrist in extension. So you're automatically getting that stretch as well. You will need to uh, depending on how bad your symptoms are, you'll need to ease onto that. So you might be on all fours at first with your hands down, and then eventually take the knees off the ground and be more like a plank and really put the load on there. And you should see a big difference. So th- that's those are my biggest recommendations. Try and move your wrist in a variety of ways, stretch out the wrist in wrist extension, and then start loading it so it actually gets stronger. The the other thing you, there's a lot of other things you can do from a, um, kind of modality standpoint. Myofascial to this area is really nice, especially because your hands are usually in a dependent, it's called a dependent position. So they're lower than the heart. And if you have swelling in there, that's why people will wake up in the middle of the night and they'll have pain because they've been still. And you need that, um, in inflammation and, and blood flow to be kind of recirculated. So, massage and myofascial in particular can help that. So, you can do that to yourself. You can also go and have somebody do it to you. <laughs> there are some wrist kind of uh, bands and stuff that you can use. I don't know really how helpful they are. I think at the end of the day, you really have to do some of the work yourself, you know, in terms of extending, up, in terms of stretching the wrist and really being mindful of the movements that you are doing. I hope that's helpful for all of you with carpal tunnel and definitely something you want to avoid. So if you know you spend a lot of time on your computer, take frequent breaks, stretch out your wrists, circle the wrist, move them in a variety of ways, make a fist and open it, and try and create some space in there. Okay, so um, another question that I got that was multiple people wrote is, from people probably who've seen me doing sun salutations, they might be on my lit daily classes, or they might just be seeing it on my Instagram post. But the question is about why do I not practice lifting halfway after I forward fold in sun salutations, and why don't I want? Why do I not want to let the head hang in a forward fold? Okay, so uh, those of you who don't know exactly what that's talking about, sun salutations. This is a movement pattern, a sequence in um, vinyasa yoga practices where you are um, moving from upright standing position, lifting the arms up, folding at the hips, um, walking or jumping back, lowering to the floor, coming into like a cobra, and then lifting in a down dog, and then jumping back to the front and repeating that cycle. So it's this kind of cycle of the sun, creating heat in the body. And it's lovely. Um, I do it a little bit differently, because when I, I I look at functional movement, from a physical ther- therapy standpoint and what I know in when I'm teaching other um, people and including myself, but I've been doing this long enough. I'm, 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 my functional movement is pretty good. But what I know is that I need to, I need to teach people very consistently what I want them to be doing in their bodies or why, what, what I want them to be doing, you know, not I'm, I'm telling them because I know that functionally it's going to be the best thing, and so that it carries over into their daily life. That's what a functional movement is. It's something that we do regularly. So we're not just randomly doing a fancy pose and it has no kind of validity in our regular life. And there's many, many aspects to developing functional movement. One of them is brain mapping. It's like what you have done. So everything we do is a mess of habits. I have a a podcast on habits. And so if we know the way we move is somewhat habitual, meaning it's already kind of hardwired, we have to pay a lot of attention to creating better movement patterns. And so from my physical therapy standpoint, a viewpoint, I know that where people run into issues is in forward folding, That's one. They often move from the lumbosacral area instead of from the hips, which are really made to move you throughout your life. And your back is is not made to move as much in that way. It's just not as sustainable. And the other thing is that I want to be very consistent with my languaging and my instruction because that is what will reshape movement patterns. Our, we're never going to take away old movement patterns or habitual movement patterns, but we can improve our motor firing, our motor planning, our map brain mapping with consistency. I always say moving your body or t- in teaching movement is very much like dog training. It really is. Since I've had dogs, I realize this is so true. You have to be so consistent. If you kind of give in a little bit, And I'm like, okay, that's fine. You know, you didn't sit when I asked you to, or you didn't stay, or you're jumping up and whatever. I don't have the time to kind of deal with you and give you the right feedback for that. Then that's a mixed message. So all of that is laying the foundation for why I don't, in a forward fold, let the head go during sun salutations. I let it go in other times. I love doing this happy squat thing where I bend my knees, lay my belly on my thighs, and let the head release and get a great back fascial stretch. But in a sun salutation, which is meant to create heat and which in, because we're moving in a variety of ways, I really want my core integrated. I don't want to, I don't want to confuse my body by folding forward, which is creating this like folded position and maybe some spinal flexion um, and getting out of neutral spine and co-contracted trunk, most likely and then kind of fix it by going into Arda utanasa which is that half lift. I would rather stay in a half lift the whole time, knowing that when my hands land on the floor, I'm going to walk or jump back, and I will not have lost, quote unquote, that co-activated trunk, which is a super functional requirement. When you move, co-activation means everything around my trunk, my my core, which is my spine, my pelvis, Um, my rib cage, my scapula, my outer shoulders, everything has an energetic hold. So it's supporting the center of your body as I'm moving, especially if I'm jumping back or jumping forward. I really want that really turned on. So it's confusing from a brain mapping standpoint to fold into this deep uttanasana, recorrect in a half lift to then go back to then walk or jump back. So it's not that I don't like the half lift. I don't want to leave the half lift. What I really am not doing is teaching full Uttanasana in that point. So I hope for the non-yogis that makes sense. But I think it's a really good practice of examining our movement patterns. And what is this particular movement pattern requiring? So in a sun salutation, the requirement is we're moving with our breath. We're moving with a sense of lightness and a co-contracted trunk because we're moving from Standing tall, hinging forward, jumping back, lowering to the floor, lifting off the floor, coming in a down dog, walking or hopping forward. So there is movement in a variety of planes and directions. Maybe not uh, some directions, especially if you hop up into a handstand, but it, there's a lot is required. And so you really have to have a quite rigid trunk to do that. And I don't want any mixed message in that because that's when people, when they jump back and they tell you, oh, jump, don't jump into plank. Well, I wouldn't want anybody jumping in a plank either if they had kind of released their entire co-contracted trunk in a forward fold and then kind of recorrected and a little bit and then jumped back into it. So what I'm saying is move in big ways with that co-activated um, trunk. And I have found that my practice is way better. I've been doing that now for about 10 years. Just drop the full uttanasana in that place. Use it somewhere else. Use it for a place like once you've created a lot of heat and you want to get a back fascial line stretch, do it there. That has much more impact than it just forward fold all the way down, lift halfway. It feels like too puppeteerish. And again, it's like just like you're not gonna jerk your dog around giving it different, you know, cues, it's the same thing here. Be be really consistent for the brain mapping and it makes a big difference. And you know, I just taught enough people who do it this way, and I'm telling you, they just look so much happier. They look so and they look so much stronger and integrated. It's just you you remain integrated, and you don't have to kind of refind it. That's what that half lift always feels like. I'm kind of refinding my neutral spine. So there is the long answer to that. But several of you had asked about that, so I got like maybe 20 questions, a variety of what is the best way to strengthen, tighten, firm, access my core. Um. So first of all, I the core is. Every, like i just was mentioning it when i talked about a co-activated trunk the core is everything but your limbs so that includes from the lower part of your pelvis your pelvic floor your outer pelvis everything in between circle it all the way up everything all the stuffing in between all the way to the outer hips so it's a lot it's everything that is supporting your ac- your axial skeleton essentially where it meets the appendicular skeleton which is your your limbs your upper body and your your lower body. So how to strengthen that? I mean, my goodness, there's so many ways. Here's the quick answer. Go and take my yoga classes because my yoga movement classes on my daily lit on my daily lit platform always are focused on integrating the core because if you are going to move well in life, you have to have this active core. Is it dialed up to 10 out of ten with all movements. No. There's an adaptability to it. There's an intellectual uh, capacity to it where it where we where we develop the sense of how much we need to ramp up the core activity or not. Every single class is fundamentally about this. So you just have to take my classes. If you want to learn how to work the core, it's just way too hard and too much material to go into on a podcast and you get free a free trial so so it's at least worth doing that and there's a new class i there is a different class every single day this is pretty different than a lot of a uh, lot what you could find out there because this is how i want people to move better and so i'm exploring creative ways of helping you do that on your mat and at every class is about core activation and then moving with that so check those out and that'll save me a lot of time from explaining on a podcast and you'll and you'll be lit up you won't have any question about how to how to strengthen it because it'll just happen okay so some other questions we have what do i what do you think about demoing while teaching um this person says you teach and demo on the online site but in class do you also do it Um, This is a great question. So on my online classes, I was just talking about them. Um, I am actually doing the class as I'm instructing it. And I often have my yoga teachers in there with me. And a few classes um, a week are filmed at the studio with real students. And it's in a class that is called a level three groove class. So the first part of that is I demo it because... It's my style. It's my method. I'm creating it. And it's, I can demo it pretty well. And I've learned how to talk and look around and instruct and all that. And I've been teaching for many many years. So in general, for my online video stuff, I think it's really helpful to have me doing it and because it gives people the visual. And then what I found is over the years, that that is true in person as well. So I used to have a home studio and I grew my home studio from us like five person in a room, and and then we built a new house with a capacity for ten people, and so it was getting kind of crazy. I had a lot of classes, and what would happen is they were all were it was all word of mouth, and they were all full. But if somebody wasn't going to be there one day, they would let me know, and I had a wait list of people, and I would tell the wait list people, "Oh, you can come and take this class." And one time, what happened is I got a wait list person. And they were very happy. This person was very happy to fill in, and the person who was supposed to be in the class, who was supposed to be away, actually ended up not going away and said, "Oh, I actually come come to my class." And I had to say, "Well, I gave it to somebody on the wait list," and I felt really bad, so I immediately said, "Well, why don't you join me in my practice today?" And she she said, "Really?" And I was like, "Yeah." And and afterwards, she told me she's like, "That was really helpful because I now you cue all this stuff, you adjust, and you give me um, feedback, but." to see you do it, put it into action was very helpful. And then it just kind of rippled, like people heard about it and they're like, can we practice with you too? Can we practice? And so then I just created a class where I'm like, here's my practice, come and join me. And I did that. And then when I built my my public studio, a lot of my students were like, are you going to still do that class, that practice with you? Because it's really helpful. And I said, yeah, I'll do that. So that's called my, that's called level three groove. And level three is not to intimidate anybody, but just to give them an idea because levels aren't people. Level is what you can expect in the class. But the level three is that it's a practice with me that there will be definitely some, you can definitely assume there's going to be inversions and some more challenging movement patterns in there, but there's always somewhere you can stay if you don't want to do an inversion. And it's a way to see the teacher moving. So there's a very specific reason behind it. And we have 50 classes, 50 some classes at the studio and four, yeah, four of them are group. So we don't, have, you know, it just shows you there's not that many. So if you have a reason like that, that's great. Otherwise, I never have my mat out when I'm teaching. I'm walking around, I'm instructing. I demo when it's absolutely necessary, but I want to see how well I can communicate it with my, ver, you know, my verbal cues and instructions to see how it lands. And then I'll add to it, because there are people who are visual, who you can sit there and say all the best instructions, but they just need that one little like, wait, what did you mean? So I think when it's appropriate, you just give some some idea of what you mean, but you're not doing the class like you would be. Um, and that's, so that's like, what is the intention is my biggest question. There's many people who are new yoga teachers and they practice on the mat with the people in the class. And I think it's a comfort. It's like a lot less scary. You're doing the practice. You don't have to really look around. It helps you keep track of what you're doing because you're doing it in your body. There's reasons. And I think they're innocent enough. However, it's not a good idea. Like you're not paying attention to your students as a new teacher in particular. You just have way too many other things you're thinking about if you're practicing and trying to instruct and look at the people in your class. The caveat to that is with beginners. And anybody that's taught beginners is probably not in your head. If you're teaching beginners, you will be demoing a lot because beginners are new in all the ways. This is new movement patterns. This is new terminology. They're like, warrior one, I have no idea what you're talking about. So you are going to have to demo a lot with them, but you're also going a lot slower. So you're not kind of stuck in demo mode. You just pop up and demonstrate something and then come down and look at them. So I hope that that's kind of my opinion about demoing or practicing, I think there's got to be a really good reason if you're practicing. And so for me, like a level three practice with me, um, people really like it. And if, if uh, and I'm able to see them and give them instructions and all that kind of thing because of the years I've been teaching. If I was a new teacher, I wouldn't be doing that. So I hope that answers that question for yoga teachers out there. Okay. Woo. Let's see. Here we go. Any? um, Do you recommend engaging the glutes in up dog? I I recommend engaging the glutes almost all the time. Honestly, I don't think I can think of an instance where engaging the glutes is a bad idea. So there's your answer. Glutes are fundamentally made to be working for you to stabilize. Think about this: they're stabilizing your pelvis. So if you if you're in plank, for instance and you are just staying in plank with your gait, with your glutes barely working, your load on your arms and, and the surrounding areas, scapula, ribcage, all that, is so much greater. You, if you get in that plank and you engage your glutes, you are already doing like 40% of the work. You're taking it out of the arms tremendously. Your glutes contract, and they will, through fascial connections, activate the deeper transverse abdominus which is a really important muscle for corseting the waist and it's very close to the lumbar spine sharing connective tissue with the lumbar fascia and the so it is it helps to stabilize your low back so working the glutes is amazing i think where people get confused is like in an up dog for instance if you were to kind of squeeze your glutes like you were pinching a penny between your butt cheeks or something (laughs) and like roll the thighs in external rotation, you can kind of grip around the sacrum and then you add a thoracic extension with that and it would feel a little bit um, not great. So what you have to be very clear about is that you're working the glutes to stabilize the pelvis from which you can pull your chest forward. So you're not pushing into the floor and backing bending into your sacrum but actually drawing your hands vigorously back to pull the thoracic spine forward and the glutes will help you tremendously by stabilizing that okay so here's some other question um, passive versus active stretching a couple people ask about that i do have a podcast on functional stretching so i would check that out Passive stretching to me, just in its very um, nature, just doesn't sound like a great idea. So a passive stretch in my physical therapy mind is a stretch by which you are put into uh, some you know, joint position and then you're just, it's being held there because that's passive. Active is you put yourself into a, you put your joints into a position and you might hold it. So for instance, if somebody were to, you know, go into their on their back, for instance, lying on their back and opening up their legs as far as, as wide as they can, they're gonna feel at some point their inner thighs would be like you're coming into a straddle, like really opening up the legs wide. At some point, you're gonna feel your inner thighs tighten. And so you'll reach this end range of that ability and you could hold it there. So you're not weight bearing. I'm I'm much more of a fan of weight bearing to get a functional stretch, but let's just pretend like you're doing this. You're on your back, you're opening up your legs for an inner thigh groin stretch. Now, if you instead took your hands and pulled your thighs open and started pulling them down as far as you can, that's going to be you've taken your hands and then you've opened them up so you're not actively um, moving the joints in that position, but you've put the joints in that position. That is more what I would say is a passive stretch. So I'm not sure if this the people that are writing this are referring to passive stretch like that or if they're referring to more of a static stretch so this person asked about passive versus active. Static stretch is where you stay in one position versus moving. And, and so there's, what I would say is the way I practice is mobilizing the joints. And then once the joints are in a nice kind of mobile way with, with a very integrated core, I would add some longer stretches, I guess is the word we would look for, because it is stretching the connective tissue but it's not passive. I would say that there's always this feeling of of being held, you know, like the contracted the contractile tissue around the joints are working. So we're not sinking into a joint. I hope that that makes sense. There's a lot of talk about stretching and like, what is a good way to stretch? What's not a good way to stretch? What's dangerous? You always want to just be aware that you're not going into the in range of joint motion and you definitely don't want to go into in range of joint motion passively meaning putting yourself there not actively not actively taking yourself into a, a range of motion okay um, i'll take one more question here and then i'll have to get back to all these different things so this person asks any tips on communicating with physical therapists and other other body workers to get the most from a session Um, I think that's a great question because you are a, you're paying for a service and you're coming there for a reason. You might have a quote diagnosis, but you're coming there for some kind of reason. So first of all, you need to choose wisely who you're going to spend that money and time with or on. I would get a lot of recommendations for body workers in particular, and then be very communicative about what you know about your body. For instance, if some if somebody's going to work on you myofascially, you can say, I am very sensitive to um, deep pressure or moderate pressure. My skin has sensitive... I would communicate like things you know about yourself that you're really particular about. Like I don't like somebody, you know, say if... Let me just make this personal. If I were to go to someone and they are a body worker, but I'm not really sure exactly what they're going to do, And if, and if they seemed in any way, like they were into adjustments, I would say, I don't want anything adjusted. And I don't want you, I definitely don't want you touching my neck and adjusting it because that would freak me out. (laughs) And it takes a lot to freak me out, but I have actually many years ago, like 20 years ago at, at a conference where, you know, I was there with other physical therapists and chiropractors and whatnot. And, um, this one chiropractor was just like, oh, I was just, I, I even forgot what was, I think I was feeling a little, you know, I hadn't, you know, I'd taken an air, I'd taken a flight. I was just, I hadn't slept in a while. I just think I was like, just run down. And, um, she was like, well, let me see. I, I can just, you know, kind of move stuff around and, and make, this will help. And I was like, oh, okay. I, I, I don't know why I didn't know what she meant by move stuff around. <laughs> I think I was tired and she just was like moving in my, you know, rubbing my neck. And then all of a sudden she just took my head and went, and I was like, what just happened? Like, I was so not happy about that. And might I add, it wasn't a huge adjustment. It wasn't like, you know, it was just, I wasn't ready for it. I don't want anybody working on my neck, quite frankly. So I would convey the things that you do not want. And then ask the person. Here are the things that I'm w- w- I'm w- wanting. You know, this is where I feel like I have some issues. What are your thoughts about this? Have you treated other people with this? And kind of what is your approach? You're. It's fine to ask questions. I have people ask me questions all the time. If they're coming, and many people drive hours to work with me. They work with me on Skype, and you know they're paying me money. I am. Um, if I'm going to listen to what exactly they want. And my, you know, I'm, I don't work with insurance companies. And so I, I, I'm, you know, I, it's all out of pocket. People are paying me. But one of the first questions I ask is what is your goal? Cause I really want to hear what is your goal? And so I think that if you're the person that you're working with a PT or a body worker and it's, and they're new to you and if they don't ask you that question, just go and tell them that say, well, here is my goal. Here's really what I want to accomplish and don't be afraid of that. This is again a service, and um, you'll also get a lot of information about with how that person responds. So ask for what you want. I hope this was helpful. Thank you. I get so many questions, and I wish I could go through more of these. Somebody, I'll just—I should say this real quickly on my on my ending. Somebody asked me about dog food. Um, my dogs do eat a vegan diet. I have one that would eat veggies and fruit and all that. I got like eight questions about my dog food. And I have one, which I call the reluctant vegan. He will eat like anything meat sourced as possible. Anything in the woods, he'll find like a, you know, (laughs) gross stuff. So dogs are not obligate carnivores like um, cats are. So um, that's the answer. There's, I think it's natural balance is the dog food that I use. All right, everyone. Have a wonderful day. Shoot in some more questions. I really love answering them. They help me direct. And tell me what you want to hear about on this podcast. So write me at laura at movementbylaura.com or write podcast at movement movementbylaura.com and make sure you that you subscribe and share with friends so I can keep doing this for you and um, all about you. And it's all about movement to all make us all feel better. Sending you hugs.